It is time for choke points. So the next phase to widen I-5 through JBLM now underway. Drivers can expect three years of lane reductions, traffic shifts, and congestion. Chris is here with the details on that. Just when you thought the construction was over on I-5 south of Tacoma, here we go again. (laughs) Uh, We are now in phase three of the widening project of both directions of I-5 from the north end of JBLM down through DuPont. This will allow the Washington Department of Transportation to extend the HOV lanes from where they end now near the main gate at JBLM about a mile to the south to the Stillicum DuPont Road. Where that HOV lane starts to end, that's where you start to see the backup. So we'll be looking to get more people into HOV lanes as we extend that HOV lane and also work in improving the interchanges down in the DuPont JBLM area. The North HOV lane will begin at Mounts Road as part of this project. WashDOT's Doug Adamson says Phase 3 will also include a new diverging diamond interchange at the Stillicum DuPont Road. This diverging diamond interchange will help out in terms of moving people more efficiently between uh, the JBLM DuPont gate as well as up into the Stillicum DuPont Road. And uh, Travis, if you don't know what a diverging diamond interchange is. They're like your favorite, aren't they? Yes, this is the third one that's uh, now under construction. These are the ones where you go across the freeway in the opposite direction of traffic to prevent uh, head-on collisions from people turning left in front of you. It really eases the interchanges there, so uh, that'll be nice. This one will also provide another overpass of I-5 that will take some pressure off uh, Center Drive in DuPont. A lot of work has been going on just outside view, but Adamson says that's all going to change soon. We'll be seeing some pretty significant traffic shifts coming up here after the new year. We really hope uh, folks stay dialed in. People might ask, why not add just a general purpose lane through the area? And you have to remember that WashDOT's goal is moving people, not vehicles. So that's why they're adding HOV lanes. And Adamson says the last extensions of the HOV lanes through JBLM have really helped. We've seen uh, an overall real decrease in congestion and travel times and also the the environmental benefits you see from uh, adding HOV lanes where you're moving more people with fewer cars. Now, I drive that corridor a lot, especially on Fridays in the summer. I-5 really does open up like never before once those HOV lanes pop up. But the southbound I-5 drive isn't great where they end, so this project should help address that. Another issue WashDOT is tackling in this project most drivers probably didn't even realize was a problem. There's an underpass of I-5 connecting JBLM property on either side of the freeway at Pendleton Avenue. Its clearance is only 12 feet, 4 inches. Addison says trucks have hit the underpass four times this year alone. We have nine recorded incidents of overheight vehicles hitting the bridge uh, dating back to 1993. So it's an ongoing issue. The last truck got stuck under that overpass earlier this month. Responders actually had to deflate the tires to get it out of the way. It was that far wedged inside. Reminds me of a very busy road in Joint Base Lewis-McCord, even though you really can't see it because it's below Interstate 5, but it's very important as there is a lot of activity that's going on in Joint Base Lewis-McCord throughout the day. Sorry, Sully, I didn't know you had a soundbite to play there, but it reminds me of those notorious overpasses that always get hit, including the the railroad one in Spokane, Travis. 
Yes, yeah. that's what I was calling to. Yeah. Yeah, or the, is, the one in the Arboretum uh, through Seattle. Yes. There's yeah. that old. They, people just get stuck in those places. I know. It's incredible. And it's clearly that, marked. Yes. Yeah. There's like flashing lights and signs. Yeah. So to fix it is, yeah, obvious to yeah. do that. And so what they're going to do is they're actually going to lower Pendleton Avenue to provide better clearance. When it's done, the new height's going to be over 16 feet. So that should be much better. Now, phase three is not the last project to improve I-5 in this area. The following phase, which has yet to be funded, will widen the freeway through Nisqually and build bridges, new ones, over the Nisqually River. Wow. So and will that be the last one, or do we have phase six and seven and eight and nine? Well, I mean, you know, we are talking about Tacoma area construction, after all. Well, technically, you know, by this point, you're you're, you're really in DuPont. I mean, I guess. Uh, but no, so the thing is, is that, uh, you know... I five needs to grow yeah. in that area. I mean, we have so many people. I didn't realize it till I started doing the traffic and the text line came online a few years. How many people actually commute? Absolutely. from the Olympia area yes. back and forth. Uh, there are there are people that are listening now. They're on the road early, so yeah, and it it, it needs that. And let's not forget, JBLM grew exponentially, you know, after, you know, the war in Iraq and whatnot. And there's so many, it's, it's, it's a huge city if you think about it, but you don't really think about them there. And there are commuting patterns around the base. And one of the, I mean, this is a small, but it is interesting. I read this morning in the Seattle Times that Amtrak is adding two round trip tip trip trips yep. between Seattle and Portland. Yep. And I mean, you know, that's, that is a commute I used to make when we had a station in Portland and I had to go from Seattle to Portland. And I mean, it, you do get slogged down there. So that may take a little bit of the pressure off. Too. Yeah, let's hope so. So yeah, that, that that's a, I saw the, that yesterday, so Amtrak is doing that, so that'll definitely give you another option uh, from having to drive down. You can take a nice, easy train uh, down for a weekend or whatever. Yeah, that's a great option. All right. Thank you very much, Chris. Right now, let's talk Seahawks. The team has a big test tonight as they face off against the Cowboys down in Texas. To get us prepared for the game, we talked to Mike Salk, host of the Brock and Salk Show over on our sister station, 710 Seattle Sports. Hawks started the season off pretty well, but have lost three of the last four games, which led me to ask Mike, what is up with this team? It's been kind of a funky season, right? It, it They had gotten themselves to a point at 6-3 and three where you started to see the vision of where this thing was going. And the last month has been really rough. I mean, they've been blown out twice. In the middle of that, they had one win over a mediocre Washington team, and then you know a brutal loss to a to a to a Rams team that you really should have beaten, and, and kind of beat yourself in that game. This is look. I don't want to sit here and say this is must win, or the future of the Seahawks depends on what happens tonight. That is an exaggeration. But it's not as big an exaggeration as it should be, if that makes sense. I mean, Geno Smith needs to play better than he has for the last month, or he's not going to be the quarterback next year. Shane Waldron, they're all tight, huh? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, this performance this year will make or break his career. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say so. I mean, I think this whole year has been that. He's on what is essentially a deal that the Seahawks can get out of at the end of the year. This has this year has always been sort of a continued audition for him. And uh, yeah, I said this morning, if this is an audition this whole year, then tonight is the night that he's got to hit the high note or cry on command or whatever it is you're supposed to do <laughs> yeah. during an audition. I think you're supposed to get a touchdown in football. Well, then that's what he better do okay. tonight because right. they Colleen need it. Colleen lecturing Mike <laughs> yeah. on football Isn't that nice? That I was love nice. that whole yes. exchange. Colleen, what is it again that you have to do during football? <laughs> it's a touchdown. It's a touchdown. Yes. Thank you. Yes. So, thank you. Travis, you're, it's a good thing you're here. Uh, one thing that I'm really wondering about, and this is sort of an identity that Pete Carroll has carried throughout his entire tenure here, is running the ball. And I haven't seen a lot of 
with that. Why are they not running the ball as much? It seems like they have this great dual thread of Ken Walker, who might be injured, and, and Zach Charbonnet. What's going on there? Why aren't they running it? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> I, I mean, we've been asking the same thing every day. There are 32 teams in the NFL. The Seahawks are 30th in rushing attempts this year. I mean, that's just not going to do it. Um, a Pete Carroll team needs to be able to move the ball on the ground. There's a lot of benefits that come from being able to run the ball. It opens things up. It helps your offensive line move forward rather than backwards. It tires out your opponent. It helps you win late. It keeps your defense off the field and your offense on it. Uh, it opens up the play action game and your passing game. There are so many benefits beyond just moving the ball forward three, four yards at a time that come when you run the ball. And that is at the at the heart of Pete Carroll's philosophy. So to see them 30th in the league in rushing attempts is an identity crisis of sorts. So all of those things sort of come into tonight with Geno Smith, with their offensive coordinator, Shane Waldron, who I think is also, you know, a guy that that there's a lot of conversation about right now is whether or not he's the right guy for the job. Uh, And eventually, and I'm not saying Pete's on the hot seat, but at some point, if you keep getting blown out the way they were on Thanksgiving in front of a national audience, the way they were by Baltimore in front of a national audience, if it happens tonight in front of a national audience, and then you've got San Francisco again next week, and then you've got Philadelphia, who's the best team in the NFL so far this year. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you can start to write a script that things are not moving in the right direction right now. It is 7.15 on Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield, in for Dave Ross. Colleen O'Brien is with me as well as Chris Sullivan. All right, this is an important story if you have a kid in your life, and most of us do. We're probably buying a gift or two right now for a kid, and there is one toy that we should absolutely mark off the list of things to buy. Water beads. The Consumer Man, contributing editor of Checkbook.org, Herb Weisbaum, joins us now. So, Herb, these are the colorful little balls that are, like, super super absorbent. They're they, so they, popular And they like grow, right? Yeah. When you put them in water. Oh, they feel great. They're like sensory toys. Mm-hmm. So Herb, why are they so dangerous? Well, good morning. Yes, uh, they've been around for a couple of years now, and we're seeing the injuries of children all across the country. They're dangerous because they don't look dangerous. They're, they're colorful. They look like candy. They're really small, but they can grow when put in water to a 50 to 100 times their size or more. So that little tiny, what uh, looks like a sprinkle on top of ice cream, uh, can turn into the size of a golf ball, which is okay if it's on the floor and not so good if it's in your trachea or it gets in your intestinal track. And that, unfortunately, is what's happening. Kids are swallowing them, and uh, according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, they estimate between 2016 and 2022, 7,800 children across the country had to be rushed to hospital emergency rooms. In many cases, surgery is required to remove the blockages, and one death is known to be linked to water beads, a 10-month-old baby in North Prairie, Wisconsin. We've they've been around for two years, Herb, and my kids have certainly played with them. We see them at friends' houses. Why are we just now hearing? Uh, what was that again? Seventy eight hundred injuries. Yes, one of the reasons we're starting to hear uh, about them is because consumer groups are trying to alert people, especially this holiday season, and because of a, a mother in Texas. And I want you to just, uh, I spoke to her for my story that I did for Checkbook.org, and I want to share a little bit of that interview with you. Ashley Halkin is a 32-year-old mother of two in San Antonio. She doesn't want any other children to get hurt by water beads. Her 13-month-old daughter, Kipley, nearly died after eating some of them, and Ashley remembers how terrifying that was. 
they couldn't figure out what was wrong with her. We didn't know that she had swallowed anything until the surgeon came and showed us the picture of what he had pulled out of her small intestine, which was water beads. After Kipley's surgery, everybody, including the doctors and, you know, our, our family, we thought, OK, this is a close call, but she's going to be fine now. She just needs to heal from the surgery and she's going to be OK. And that is not what happened. Kipley stopped answering to her name consistently. She had had this rash on her mouth that disappeared, but then she started having rashes in other parts of her body that were very severe. She didn't like the same foods anymore. Her personality changed. She wasn't sleeping the same way anymore. So the Haugans took little Kipley to a developmental pediatrician who told them their toddler had toxic brain encephalopathy caused by toxic chemicals in those water beads. Keep in mind that Ashley and her husband bought those toys, that toy for their older daughter, and because it posed a choking hazard, they kept it away from Kipley. The older daughter played with it in a different area, but these things get everywhere, and that's one of the points that Ashley wants everybody to understand. Imagine little pieces of glitter with the bouncing power of a Super Bowl. And that's a water bead. They get everywhere into every nook and cranny. And you can clean up and do a wonderful job at cleaning up. And they get missed and you don't even realize it. I want parents to know that good parenting cannot fully prevent injuries from hazardous products. I want them to know that the same water beads that poisoned and injured Kipley can be purchased right now. And in August of 2022, Ashley started a nonprofit called That Water Bead Lady to educate parents about the dangers and to advocate for a ban on the toys. And she is pushing hard to get those toys banned. But Herb, I just did a Google search and I see them available on Amazon, Target, oh, Hobby Lobby. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're all of it. So is there any action being taken to try and prevent them from being on store shelves? Well, a congressman from New Jersey, Frank Pallone Jr., has actually introduced the Ban the Water Beads Act, which if passed would direct the Consumer Product Safety Commission to prohibit the sale of water beads marketed for children. That would be much quicker, believe it or not, than the CPSC trying to create a rule that would ban them. Congress's action would make things a lot faster. So that's what they're hoping will happen at this time. And in the meantime, warning parents, do not have these toys. If you have them in the house, get rid of them and clean up really carefully. And by the way, these are a danger to pets, too. If your dog or cat were to eat one of these things and it gets in their intestinal tract, um, that could that could kill them as well. So, uh, this, and also, by the way, some kids are putting these in their ear and then they expand ah. the ear canal yeah. and they have to do surgery on the ear. Mm-hmm. This is just a toy that shouldn't be there. Most of them are coming from China, uh, by the way, and they're labeled non-toxic. And as Ashley points out, non-toxic is meaningless. These toys turn out to be toxic. Herb, Chris Sullivan here. Just a quick question, uh, because my son is obviously older, but water beads, is that a generic name? I don't have a, I do, what are some of the product names? We had a list, a question from our our text line. What are some of the product names that we should be looking out for? Well, there's all kinds of product names, and these these are coming over from China, so there's not a product to watch out for. It's a type of toy, and they're all called water beads. Yeah, they, we've seen Marv- water beads. So, Just a quick uh, Google. It's water yeah. beads, uh, water bees, bees. Yeah, lots of different names. But you know what they are when you see them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And like I said, it's just 
when you see, and, and as Ashley pointed out, you can't see him on x-rays. So the, the kid comes in the hospital, emergency room, and the doctor's going, we don't have a clue as to what's going on with little Kipley. The doctor basically came to their parents and said, I don't know what's going on. i got to open her up or she's going to die. I mean, imagine being in an emergency, and then he opens her up and all this goo is inside from the water beads. Uh, that's the consumer man, contributing editor of Checkbook.org, Herb, her, Checkbook.org, Herb Weisbaum. <laughs> Herb, it is always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for this important warning. Thanks, Travis. Good to talk to you again. Take care. That was great. Yes, fight for the fairy system. We love it so much. The Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. As of 2020, more than 200,000 people in Shelby County, Tennessee, are considered food insecure. And a family business is working to change that. When you walk into grazing tables, you're thrown into what could easily be mistaken for a very cozy living room because customers sit family style. Co-owner, co-owner Chelsea Berenger spoke with CBS affiliate WREG TV. Oh, a lot of people have a hard time pronouncing charcuterie, so everybody used to say, give me one of those grazing boards. Grazing boards, that's how Tennesseans say it. Coming from a family of cooks, she loves to feed, and her family loves to feed people too. It's now spilled into feeding those in need. How are we a food city and we have such one of the highest poverty rates? in America. So for me, it was like, how do we fix this? The business gives away lunch boxes to children facing food insecurity and after-school programs, community centers, and churches, too. When every lunchbox is purchased here, an adult Lunchable, it actually helps fund a kid's Lunchable. So, And they get the same Lunchable. It may just be different, maybe like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, something that they may not love salami or prosciutto and pepperoni as much as we do, but it definitely allows them to get nutrients meals. And she says she and her sister prepare prepackaged meals meals for customers who can't afford their food for dinner. It's a great idea. I remember a lot of our local restaurants doing this during the pandemic for kids who maybe had to do remote learning, but they live in a food insecure home. So, you know, something you can do year round, too. And demand at food banks is up. I mean, the yes. district food bank is up like 47% year over year. So even if you don't own a restaurant, you can still donate to yes. the food banks. There's so much to do. And it's important to know, too, that a lot of food banks will take canned goods even past the, the due date because our due dates in the yeah, U.S. Made are made up. Yeah. And uh, they also will take produce from your garden if you have uh, an abundance of produce. Oh, that's good so, to know. Yeah, there's yeah. so many options. Yeah. Just give them food. Please. <laughs> A real treat for us this morning. Cairo Knights host Jake Scorheim is here up early. Yes. And you're going to talk to us about D.B. Cooper. This is uh, last week, the 52nd anniversary. This is, if, if people don't know, we'll just reset the whole thing. Passenger on this Northwest Airlines flight hijacked the plane, telling flight crew he had a bomb, requested a parachute, money from the crew. Went by the name Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper, you know, jumped out of it with a bag full of cash and he's never been found. It's been a mystery ever since. You talked to somebody last night who maybe has some new details. Yeah, well, there's this guy. He's part of a local uh, local group. His name is Eric Eulis, and they investigate this. And they like they like comb over every little bit of evidence. The FBI investigated the case for like 45 years. They, they closed it in 2016 after almost a half a century. It was like the longest open FBI case in history that would never got solved. And uh, so he pours through all of these things. He did all the FOIA requests and got all this stuff. And he actually, um, the fun thing about D.B. Cooper is you learn something new every time you look into it. And he was telling me about D.B. Cooper's case. Actually, he believes was a copycat case that from like two weeks earlier, back in 1971, and I think we have a clip here of him describing it. Uh, I could just let him do it. but I actually suspect that uh, he planned for no more than about 11 days. And the reason why I say that is because actually 11 days before the D.B. Cooper skyjacking, there was a guy in Canada who tried something similar, but he, he didn't 
get that far, a guy named Paul Sinney. And the skyjackings are similar enough and innovative enough, whereby I suspect that the Paul Sinney failed skyjacking, which was broadly reported at the time, served as an, as an inspiration for D.B. Cooper. I think Cooper read about this and thought, you know what, I could actually do this. And to be sure, he was. Yeah, he did it. (laughs) Yeah, and he was successful doing it. And, you know, he points out, obviously, and we all know this, they've never found any evidence of him having landed. They never found the parachute. Mm -hmm. All they did find was eight years after he jumped, they found this wad of cash on this riverbank. Right. Uh, down near Vancouver, Washington, I believe, which was pretty far from where they thought he jumped yeah. originally. And so it's just one of those cases that's just so fascinating. And Especially I think- since they've never caught him. Yeah, we're all caught up in the local Northwest lore of D.B. Cooper and could you find him? And I know I've, I've seen all the different documentaries and movies about it where they do ha- they have to sneak into private property to try and investigate, like, is this the place he landed? Can yeah. we find any artifacts? Yeah. He. Uh, so this guy, again, this name is Eric Ulis. He's part of a documentary on Netflix called uh, D.B. Cooper, Where Are You?, which is a really good four-part uh, series that you can check out on Netflix. And I believe your friend, you were saying, yeah, actually made a movie. Is that right? Ryan, who might actually be listening. Ryan, we go back to junior high. He just starred in a movie a year and a half ago called I Am D.B. Cooper, which uh, premiered at the Seattle International Film Festival. I believe you can also find it on streaming services. And they also, they go back between like a feature film and the documentary real investigator people like you're talking about cool. who are obsessed with finding this guy. I, what is it about the case that everybody's so fascinated by? Is it just because it's never been solved, or is it because we kind of like admire? I think the guts they made him take? look slick too, right? He's yeah. always sort of pictured with a tight yeah, and dry like haircut, the sunglasses, the and like, yeah, skinny mid-century tie, modern yeah. suit, Don totally. Draper. Yeah, yeah so that's exactly what it is. Let's yeah, not forget he walked off the back of a seven oh seven and jumped. Yeah, yeah. with a bank full of cash. No one had ever thought. Yeah. I mean, that just the way yeah. it was done was like. What? Yeah, and not very to cool. glamorize crime, but we no, no, often no. do that in media, right? Like D.B. Cooper has been glamorized almost over the years in the, yeah. in the images that you see of him. And we think, oh, to pull off a heist. It's like the movie Catch Me If You Can, right? Exactly. With Leonardo DiCaprio. We all wish we could be that sneaky and get away with money. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's endlessly uh, endlessly entertaining. And, you know, I, I, he hasn't found him yet. He's identified somebody else. If you want to check the interview out, uh, I talked to him last night on the show. But he identified a guy out of Pittsburgh. And for various reasons, he's like, I think this actually Ooh. could be the guy. He actually reached out and talked to the guy's family. The guy passed away a few years wow. ago, but he talked to his family. He and and it's a funny story he tells where he's basically telling the children of this guy like, "Hey, there's some really compelling Your dad evidence. Is Your dad is D.B. Cooper. And they're like, I don't know about that. And he's like, no, Wild. here's why I think he is. Yeah. Well, you can check out the Cairo Nights podcast at MyNorthwest.com. Jake Scorheim, he's going to be filling in for Ursula on the G and Ursula show and doing Cairo Nights tonight. No, Seahawks tonight. Oh, Seahawks. Yeah. So, yeah. so they're just I'm, trying to I stuff you in wherever off. they can. Yeah, That's nice. Exactly. I want to get All their right, money's Jake. worth. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. Washington's 6th Congressional District, you know, the Kitsap and Olympic Peninsulas, parts of Tacoma, th- that area has been represented by a Democrat for decades. And for the last decade, it's been Derek Kilmer, but he's not running for re-election. So there's a race to fill that seat. Yesterday, we talked to one of the Democrats in the race, State Senator from Bremerton, em- Emily Randall. Now, we're joined by Mason County Republican State Senator Drew McEwen. Senator, good morning. I want to talk to you about what you think you could do to flip this district. I mean, if it's been in Democratic hands since... 1964. How are you going to convince voters there to make a change? Yeah, thanks, Travis and Colleen. Thanks for having me on this morning. I appreciate the opportunity. And let me just give you a little background, too. Uh, When I ran for my state house seat in 2012, 
my seat had not been held by a Demo- by a Republican, excuse me, since 1932. And when I got elected to the Senate uh, this past cycle, uh, the last Republican to hold it was in the 50s. Uh, now, granted, Tim Sheldon caucus with the Republicans, but uh, what we've seen is a trend on the Olympic Peninsula. And 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 when uh, when uh, Congressman Kilmer was elected in 2012, out of all the state legislative districts that are in the 6th Congressional District, there was one elected Republican, and that was Jan Angel out of the 26. I got elected in 2012, and ever since then, the tide has continued to change. And you look at it today in the 35th District, where I'm from, it's three Republicans. Uh, the 19th District, which is uh, in, the, uh, in the 6th Congressional District, is three Republicans. The 26th District, which is uh, the Gig Harbor area and, uh, and part of uh, Tacoma, that is two of the two of the three seats are Republican. The district has been trending, and you know there's there's a lot of folks that frankly just feel left behind. It's largely a rural area, um, you know, traditional blue collar jobs that uh, um, that are vital to uh, to our state's economy, um, and a lot of these folks just feel left out, and they they feel that they haven't had the voice. Uh, you know, I've had the pleasure and the the honor to uh, to represent a good portion of the six via serving in the uh, in the in the state legislature in the 35th district, and my district is very uh, reflective of what the the sixth district is as a whole. So I'm very in tune with uh, with uh, the, um, the the thoughts, the fears, and the uh, the hopes of uh, the people throughout this district. And I'm going to continue to uh, uh, to run the same way I have and work in uh, um, an across the aisle fashion when when uh, the opportunity presents. Itself, but uh, bring a voice to people that uh, that frankly have been left behind uh, largely over um, over the years. That's fair, uh, but I think these days it's important to identify what flavor of Republican are you? I think it's become a bit complicated, uh, sometimes controversial. Certain Republican factions. So, uh, just simple sure. yes or no: Do you support another Trump presidency? No, I've uh, endorsed uh, I've endorsed uh, Governor Nikki Haley. Okay, do you align with the Freedom Caucus at all in the House? Uh, no. And would you vote for a federal abortion ban? I don't think you're going to see that ever come to a vote. Uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, it's been returned to the states and uh, that that vote has never happened. And I don't see that happening um, at, the, at the federal level. And the people of Washington state have spoken uh, quite large on that uh, on that issue for the past 30 years. To be fair, we also never thought Roe v. Wade would be overturned and it did. So I do need a yes or no. Would you vote for a federal abortion ban? No, it's a state's rights issue, as the Supreme Court has uh, has uh, ruled. I want to talk to you about a more local issue, the ferry crisis. Yesterday, we asked Senator Randall about this, and she said we need federal money. We need to consider opening up a bidding process for building the ferries uh, to the international community. Our ferry system is in crisis, and the district that you're, you could be running to represent has a lot of ferry communities, and they have told us they are dying on the vine. What do you think you could do if elected to Congress at the federal level to help the ferry situation? Yeah, and I've represented Kitsap as part of the 35th district, so I've had the the ferry issue has been uh, been with me for the past uh, uh, 11 years that I've been in office. Uh, there's a number of things going on there that, uh, that that we have to look at. A lot of it is at the state level, uh, but when you look at it from the federal level, I think it's prudent that in today's age and with today's technology that we do a comprehensive review of what uh, um, uh, crew uh, crew level should be and how boats can be better uh, designed to. Uh, uh, to function with uh, with a more efficient crew, uh, that's something that can be addressed at the federal level. 
Uh, should we look at uh, should we look at uh, better shipbuilding? Yeah, this ties in actually to our uh, to our navy um, and and, and the, how we've fallen behind there. We are grossly behind in in maritime altogether. We need to do a better job of educating uh, students and uh, providing the opportunities that are in the maritime industry. We also have an issue with uh, with our Future Sound Pilots Association. They are desperate for more people. Uh, so I, I favor uh, significantly increasing funding for training programs and uh, and apprenticeship opportunities. Opportunities and do it at a younger age. We don't have to wait for somebody to get out of high school. I'm not suggesting that a high schooler should be uh, running the ferry line at all. That's not what I'm getting at. But I think we should open up those career opportunities at an earlier age so they can explore it, learn it, and uh, and hopefully pursue it. So there are a number of things that we can do to help enhance that from the federal level. This is uh, Chris, our transportation reporter here. What, what about uh, working with Coast Guard perhaps at the federal level to maybe ease some of the restrictions that get in the way of some of those staffing issues? Yeah, that, that's what I was alluding to with uh, look, having a comprehensive review at the federal level on that. Absolutely. that The Coast Guard has a jurisdiction on that, and that is a discussion that we certainly need to have with them and look at what, what makes sense. A few years ago, I uh, had the, the privilege to be on a uh, delegation uh, trip to uh, Denmark and Sweden, and um, a lot of it was energy-related, but some of it uh, tied into the maritime industry. And the way they operate is significantly different. Um, they, they have a much smaller crew size. I say that with the quick annotation that we should not compromise safety, right? We need to be able to build boats that uh, that can be uh, crewed with uh, with fewer people, but not uh, not lessening the safety standards. So there there are things we can do there that um, we need to we need to listen to the Coast Guard and uh, uh, but let's let's have an open discussion on what we can do better. Mason County Republican State Senator Drew McEwen, who is potentially running or exploring the possibility of running for Washington's 6th Congressional District. We appreciate your time very much, Senator. Well, I thank you for having me on, and I look forward to, uh, to making this official very soon. All right. Keep us posted. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.